Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. Let's turn to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, verse 33. It'd be in page 947 in the Bibles in the back there. What Paul is doing here, we looked at this verse last week, what Paul is doing is he is coming to the end of the 11th chapter, three chapters where he has been painting this grand picture of the ways of God regarding salvation on a grand, global, national, and among scale among many nations, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. And as Paul comes to the conclusion of these great ways of God regarding salvation, he ends with this doxology, this anthem of praise as he considers the workings of God with salvation over human history. And he shouts out with his pen in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Would you say just that phrase with me? Ready, go. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. One more time. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How inscrutable are his ways. Last week, in the 33rd verse, we zeroed in on the phrase, how unsearchable are God's judgments. And what we were talking about related to the judgments of God in salvation, we talked about how God provided a means for us to be saved. And that means is that he gave his perfect holy son to die a sacrificial substitutionary death so that we as rebellious sinners who deserve his wrath could receive his lavish mercy. That was the means that God had provided. What I want to do today is I want to focus in on the phrase, how inscrutable are God's ways. How inscrutable are God's ways. That word inscrutable means, let me just define that, it means really impossible to interpret. Incomprehensible. Something that's unfathomable. It's beyond our ability to fully grasp or see to the depth of. And so, what I invite you to this morning 
is a study on the inscrutable ways of God. What do I mean by the ways of God? What I believe Paul is referring to here, it's a little different than the means of God regarding God's judgments. The ways of God are how God takes his salvation and applies it to individual people or to a nation. How he appropriates what he made possible in Jesus and makes it mine or makes it yours. That's the ways of God regarding salvation. And so we're going to consider that God's ways of doing that are inscrutable. They're unsearchable. They're beyond our ability to fully understand and comprehend. So that we would do what Paul did and rise up and praise and say, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. So God's inscrutable ways regarding salvation. I want to do this in two different ways. First of all, I want to talk to you about God's inscrutable ways of salvation regarding a national or global scale. How did God work his ways of salvation on a national scale regarding the Jews and ultimately a global scale related to Gentiles, everyone other than Jews? So let's consider that first. I'm going to give you three or four different points under this. Here's the first one concerning God's salvation on a national scale. Here's what God did. God chose his people. First thing God did was God chose his people. God came to a man by the name of Abram in the 12th chapter of Genesis. A man from a pagan family, an idol-worshiping man. And he came to Abram and he said, Abram, I'm going to do an incredible thing. I'm going to make you some incredible promises. I'm going to make an incredible covenant with you. And ultimately, through your lineage, all of the nations, the peoples on the earth are going to be blessed. Just hold that thought for a moment. God coming and choosing a man like Abram a pagan idol worshiper. And then God continued that with Abraham's lineage. He chose Isaac, one of Abraham's sons, and did not choose Ishmael. And then Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau, God chose Jacob, and he didn't choose Esau. What are the ways of God related to that? I mean, was there something inherent or intrinsic in Isaac's sons or son Jacob that made God choose him? That said, oh, he's better than Esau. There's something inherent in him that makes me choose him. In fact, God wanted us to answer that question because in his word, he made it explicit. And he said that before any either of those two twins 
Jacob and Esau were born or had done anything good or bad. God chose the one and he didn't choose the other. I ask you, related to God choosing Abraham and birthing that nation and choosing Isaac and not Ishmael and Jacob and not Esau, I ask you, do you understand the ways of God there? Can you trace them out? Can you figure out why God did what he did. I say to you, you cannot. Why? Because his ways are inscrutable. He operated those ways based upon the decisions of his sovereignty and his eternal decrees. Beyond us, transcendent, deeper than we can see, greater than we can fathom. Why? Because his ways regarding salvation, they are inscrutable ways. We see that in the choosing of his people. Secondly, consider the preserving of his people. Remember, this is the people through whom he's going to bring a worldwide blessing, meaning the Savior that was going to come. And so God had to preserve this line in order to accomplish that salvation. And so I want to just take one story in the Old Testament, really the life of one man among God's chosen people. And I want to outline for you just in kind of broad sketches what God did through this one man and have you consider as we come to the end of that, are those ways of God inscrutable or do you grasp why he did what he did and the reasoning behind it and the man's name is Joseph. He's the 12th son, the youngest son of Jacob. He was the spoiled son, the privileged son, the loved son of his father. And his older brothers knew that and they didn't like it and therefore they didn't like their little brother Joseph. God had some plans for Joseph. And at the age of 17 in his father's house, Joseph had some dreams. And these dreams were pretty strange dreams and the meaning, the implication behind these dreams were pretty in the face to his brothers because the interpretation, the obvious interpretation of the dreams was that one day Joseph, this younger brother, was going to rule over his older brothers and in fact even his father was going to be subjected to Joseph. You can imagine how, his, how this so endeared his older brothers to him as he told them his dreams. And their hatred of him went to fever pitch. And to make a long story short, when they got him alone, they took and they stripped this multicolored robe of honor and favor off of him and they threw him into a pit. And then as some Ishmaelites came by, they hauled him out of the pit and sold him as a slave to these traveling slave traders. And they tore the robe and they killed an animal and put blood on it and took it back to their father and said, oh, look, we found this. Is this not Joseph's robe? He has certainly been torn apart by a wild beast. And Joseph 
17-year-old Joseph was carried off to the land of Egypt. And there he was purchased by Potiphar, a high official of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph came into the household of Potiphar as his servant. And what happened over a considerable period of time is that Joseph began to get Potiphar's attention. In fact, Joseph so distinguished himself before Potiphar's eyes that eventually Potiphar, this high-ranking official, a man of incredible wealth and power, took all that he had in his household, all of his possessions, all of his servants, and he put them in charge of this Hebrew slave, Joseph. And we say, oh, wow, now finally here it is. It looks like the plan of God is really being fulfilled now. No, that's not the case. The story goes on that somebody else took a liking to Joseph. Instead of Potiphar, it was Potiphar's wife. And she made advances and attempted to seduce Joseph, but he refused her advances until finally when she grabbed him by the coat and tried to pull him to herself, he ran out of the cloak, ran away from her to flee from that temptation. And that scorned woman, when her husband got home, cried rape, and Joseph was thrown into the dungeon of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And there he sat for years. Where is the plan of God? He's supposed to rule. And there in the prison, a similar story unfolded because the warden took notice of Joseph and pretty soon he so distinguished himself in the eyes of the warden that the warden took this prisoner and turned all of the prison over to the charge of Joseph. And while Joseph was in charge of the prison, Pharaoh's butler and Pharaoh's baker were cast into prison and they came under his care. And Joseph, in the morning, noticed that they were disturbed and asked them why they were downcast in spirit. And they said, because we have had dreams that have troubled us. And Joseph said, tell me your dreams. And so they did. And Joseph interpreted their dreams. And the interpretation of one, the baker, was that his head was going to be removed and that the butler was going to be reinstated to his position in Pharaoh's court. And so Joseph said to the butler, knowing that the dream was going to come true, please remember me when you get to Pharaoh and speak a good word for me and tell him that I have been put here unjustly. And just as Joseph said would happen, the baker lost his head and the butler was reinstated. And the butler forgot all about Joseph. And there he remained for two more years in the prison. Now, just considering 
the unfolding scenario here? Does it look like the ways of God are tracking to how we think God would track when he gives a 17-year-old young man this vision, these dreams that he's going to rule. And for the next 14 years, he goes from heartache to disaster to the dungeon. But then Pharaoh had some dreams. And he was troubled by these dreams. And none of his Wise men could interpret the dreams. And then the butler said, oh, I remember. There's a man in the prison, a Hebrew. He's an interpreter of dreams, Pharaoh. He can tell you your dream. And so Pharaoh immediately calls for Joseph. And Joseph is pulled from the prison and brought to the palace. And there before Pharaoh, he has told Pharaoh's dream. And when he finishes, Joseph says, Pharaoh, what God has done is he's given you a 14-year picture of what's going to happen in your kingdom, in the world. And he is giving this to you so that you can be prepared. And here's what's going to happen. There's going to be seven years of incredible abundance in Egypt. But as soon as the seven years are done, there's going to be seven years of severe famine. And the severity of the famine over the whole land is going to be so intense, so great, that all of the seven years of abundance are going to be forgotten. Now pause there for a moment. Remember the dreams of Joseph. 17 years old, in his father's house, he had dreams that he was going to rule, that his brother and his father would bow down to him. Now consider the inscrutable ways of God. Could you have figured this out? Could I have figured this out? Joseph was sold at 17 to Potiphar, a high official of the king of Egypt. And in the home of the king of Egypt, what did Joseph learn? Joseph learned, first of all, how to speak the Egyptian language. And then Joseph learned the ways and the customs of the people of Egypt. And then Joseph learned the inner workings of an Egyptian family. And then he learned how to lead an Egyptian family, a well-to-do, extensive Egyptian family with a number of servants. And then he learned about the policies and the practices of the Egyptian government as he oversaw that family. Why? Because it was a family of Potiphar, a high official of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And what God was doing in what looked like a disaster is he was taking Joseph to Egypt's school so that he could learn 
about Egypt and had a rule in Egypt. And when Joseph had finished that level of his education, God said, time for classroom number two, Pharaoh's prison. And to the prison he goes. And there in the prison of Pharaoh, Joseph is put in charge of all of the prisoners. He led them. Who were they? They were the hardest people in society to lead. They were the criminals of society. But there he learned to lead them well, so well that he was given charge of all the prison. And then when all of the lessons of God were completed in the life of Joseph, Pharaoh had two dreams. And he was called to the palace. And standing there, moments out of the dungeon where he had sat for years, he hears the dreams of Pharaoh and he reveals to Pharaoh this 14-year plan a prophecy of what was going to take place. But then watch how ready this young man was to rule. He interprets the dream standing before the most powerful man on the planet as a prisoner, and he ends the interpretation, and without pause, he begins to tell the most powerful man on the planet what he needs to do to run his kingdom for the next 14 years. Genesis 41, 34. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land. And he goes on and outlines this 14-year kingdom plan. And Pharaoh hears the interpretation, but not just the interpretation. He hears the application of it, how to capitalize on the seven years of abundance and be prepared for the seven years of severe famine. And he said, I don't have anybody in my entire kingdom like this young man who he had now met for about 30 minutes. And he so distinguished himself in 30 minutes that Pharaoh said, he is now second in the kingdom. No one lifts hand in all the kingdom except at the word of Joseph. And I ask you, are not the ways of God inscrutable and beyond us searching out? And you say, oh, so that was the plan of of God for Joseph. No, that wasn't the plan. That was just secondary to the plan. What was the plan? Well, the plan was related to God's saving purposes for that nation in general. He was going to bring a Messiah, a Savior through them. And so what had to happen was that God had to preserve them. If they all died out, who would the Savior come from? And so the whole purpose of Joseph going to Egypt and ruling was the plan of God to preserve this chosen people. And so what happens is that 
Seven years of abundance go by and Joseph amasses an uncalculable amount of wealth and abundance for Egypt in the seven years of abundance. And two years into the famine, it is so severe that people all over Egypt and in the regions beyond are starving. They're dying and in need of grain. And so Joseph's dad, who thinks Joseph is dead, sends his brothers, Joseph's brothers, to Egypt to buy grain. And they show up and have to report in to guess who? To Joseph. And their ruler of all of Egypt is their younger brother whom they don't recognize. And they bow before him. And they tell him their story and all skip through some of the parts here, but then what happens eventually is that Joseph sends all of his servants and all of his officials out of the room in privacy. And there in an emotional moment before his brothers, he reveals to them who he is. He says, I am Joseph, your younger brother. And then he says this in Incredible statement in Genesis chapter 45, beginning in verse 5. This is on page 39 of the Bibles in the back there. Listen to what Joseph says to his brothers in that emotional moment. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Verse 7 and 8, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. You see, Joseph looks back over those now 24 years since he has thrown into the pit and he says the first thing he says to his brothers, whom the last time that he saw them were taking 20 pieces of silver in sale for his life. He says to them, don't be angry that you sold me because here's the truth. God sent me here. I know what you did, but it was God behind it all. God sent me here. And why did he send me here? To preserve a remnant among God's people. A remnant, why? Because from that remnant and that lineage was going to come the Savior of humanity. And so Joseph sends to his father's land for Jacob. And Jacob comes with his whole household and is reunited to his son whom he's believed for 24 years has been dead. And Scripture says that there were 70 in all of Jacob's family that came to Egypt to be cared for and provided for by Joseph. Now I ask you, 
Is that a way of God that you could have figured out, that you can fathom the depth of and trace the understanding? If you would have heard that story, could you have said, oh, I see God's going to work in this way. No, it's an inscrutable way. It's beyond our understanding. It's so much deeper than we could have ever comprehended, and it looked exactly the opposite of what it was as it was unfolding, but it was precisely what God intended, working out his sovereign plan in absolute precision. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How inscrutable his ways. And then God saving his people. So we've looked at God choosing a his people, and then God preserving His people. What about God saving His people? Is that inscrutable? I mean, Paul's been telling us about it here in the 11th chapter, actually the 9th, 10th, and 11th chapter, but primarily the 11th chapter of Romans. And he's told us this, that because the Jewish people, God's chosen people, rejected Jesus when He came, that God rejected them But he's been telling us God's not finished with them. Instead, here's what God did. Remember, grand purposes of salvation. That's the subject that we're on. How God works His ways of salvation on a global scale. Paul says, here's what God did. God used the rejection of the Jews as the opportunity to extend the gospel to the Gentiles. And that's been happening for 2,000 years and will continue until the very full number, until every single one of the Gentiles that God has appointed unto salvation are saved. And when the last one is saved, Paul says, here's what's going to happen. That God is going to Come and do a mighty work among the nation of Israel. Romans chapter 11, verses 26 and 27. This is on page 947. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. You see, there's a future for the Jewish nation. It's after the full number of the Gentiles comes in. God's way and how he works those ways on a grand global scale. They are unfathomable. We can hear and believe, but we can't search out the whys. We can't grasp the depths of the workings of the sovereign God of eternal decree who is accomplishing his eternal purposes in exact precision to his perfect divine will. It's beyond our comprehension. Oh, the inscrutable ways of God. Then Paul asked two questions. Verses 34 and 35. Here's his first question. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? I believe that's a summation of the whole subject matter of last week and God's judgments. In other words, who is the one that gave God counsel when he was figuring out how to provide salvation for the human race? Has anyone ever in anything ever given counsel to the 
God of the universe on why and how he should do the things that he does. It's a ridiculous question. Absolutely not is the answer. But then comes verse 35. Or who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid? And I say to you, I believe that's about God's inscrutable ways of salvation. Meaning, is there anything that any one of us has done to contribute to the salvation or to add to what God has done and help to save ourselves? Has any one of us given anything to God that merits anything related to our salvation? And the answer, obviously, is the same as the last question absolutely not absolutely not and then the second category that was the inscrutable ways of God on a national or global scale now let's bring it down to a personal level and ask this question Are the ways of God inscrutable in how He brings salvation to you and to me? Can we understand and figure out the depths of how God brings salvation to you and me? Can we comprehend why He does what He does related to it? So let me ask you five questions about that. Number one, The truth is this, God chose us for himself. Here's the question. Can anyone make the boast that he or she first chose God? Can anyone make the boast, I'm the one that chose God? If you make that boast, you are in direct argument with the Lord of all heaven all earth and all mankind. For here is what Jesus the Lord said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Say that with me. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How inscrutable His ways. Second truth, God called us to Himself. He didn't just choose us for Himself. He called us to Himself. Here's the question. Can any one of God's children, by their own will, believe in Christ and come to Him? Can any one of God's children, by their own will, believe in Christ and come to Him? If we hold that conviction, we do so making God's word out to be a lie. Listen, James 1.18, of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Whose will was our salvation? It was the will of God. John 6.44, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Ephesians 2.8-9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, this faith is not of yourselves. And it's the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. And would you say it with me? Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. 
His ways are inscrutable. Number three, God not only chose us for himself and called us to himself, he made us alive. I ask you, can any one of us claim that here's what we did. We considered with our intellect and our reasoning the claims of Christ. And as we weighed out that truth, we came to the conclusion, yes, reason dictates the truth. Jesus is who he said he is. Therefore, I am putting my trust in him. Did it happen that way with any of us? I say to you that God's word tells us it did not. We were dead, Ephesians 2, 1, and you were dead in trespasses and sins, chapter 2, verse 3, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, John three twenty seven. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven, John five twenty one. for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Exodus thirty three nineteen. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, says God. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. John 6, 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Who does it? It's God. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. His ways are inscrutable in how he comes to an individual and accomplishes their salvation. Number four, God transforms us day by day as his children. I ask you, can any follower of Jesus claim that after they have been saved, that by their actions and their obedience, that's the key that causes them to progress in their spiritual growth. Can any one of us say that? I say to you, the Word of God says no. Philippians 2.13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work according to His good purpose. In other words, you're not going to do the work of God unless God enables you to do the work of God. It's God in you that enables you to will what God wants and to work what God wants. Number five, God preserves us to the end. I ask you, can any one of us say that it is by our obedience that we persevere? It's by our faithfulness to the truth of God that enables us to stand firm to the end. And I say again to you, that is not the teaching of Scripture. Do you need to stand firm? Yes, you do need to stand firm. But what enables you to stand firm? Is it your obedience and your willpower or is it something else? Philippians 1.6. I am sure of this, says Paul, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion as the day of Christ Jesus. Who brings it to completion? It is God. 
1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And listen to how he ends it. And he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Will you say with me, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unscrutable are His ways in providing salvation on a global national scale and in every single heart that He saves. His ways are inscrutable that should cause us as Paul to shout out in an anthem of praise and worship in wonder over the greatness of God and His mercy toward us. And that causes Paul then to come to the concluding statement of the entire first 11 chapters and his conclusion over all that he is taught to that point is in verse 36. For from God and through God and to God are all things. From him, he's the source. And through Him, He's the power in the day-to-day. And to Him, He's the end goal. And what about Him? It's this goal. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Did you know that your life really has one ultimate purpose? It is a life that is to bring praise and glory to God forever. Amen. Oh, how inscrutable are the ways of God. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Please stand. Father, I stand in awe, Lord, of your greatness, of the unsearchable nature of your mercy, of the unfathomable depths of your sovereign workings and salvation. They are truly unsearchable and inscrutable. But though we cannot reason them out, we can believe them because you're the God who has proven to be faithful to your promises. Thank you for who you are. To you be glory forever. Amen.